As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. For a lot of people, they're saying, that's fine. It's not enough. I still need to go to work. My kid needs to be safe. What are we going to do about this? From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, Wisconsin's child care dilemma, an investigation into the long wait lists, high costs, and shrinking options. Hello, everyone. I'm Jenna Sachs here with Brian Polson. Hi, Jenna. And back after some time away, we're so happy to have you, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. I'm happy to be back. It How, was a long time it without was a long, you. How almost was four it? months. It was good. It was, you know, I being on maternity leave was great. I love my kid. I love the time I got to spend with her. But I have to say, it's nice to have adult interaction again. Um, so it's uh, it was kind of a weird experience. I've never really had that much time to be at home. And now that uh, baby is at daycare, it's a whole new world, whole and new experience. Now you're wearing makeup again. I dressing know. Dressing up for work. Yeah, venturing outside my home. It's all kinds of new things. It's um, not often people say talking to me gives them adult conversation, <laughs> but thank you. It's it, it, well, yeah, know. people who can talk back and... Uh, give you different reactions, although I will say at this point, uh, she's smiling now, so that's fun. You get a little something back. Give maybe. her a few years, she'll be talking back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then maybe I'll regret wishing she could talk back, huh? And now um, she's in daycare. She is. Which kind of segues nicely into what we're talking about today, huh? It sure does. The story we're talking about, there were two things going on at the same time that kind of inspired my research. So one... I had just done a story about unlicensed daycares, and parents were telling me, in their cases, they felt almost forced to go with unlicensed options because it was the only way they could afford childcare in this area. The other thing happening was that I was pregnant, and my husband and I were having a pretty tough time lining up our own childcare situation. Amazing the things you notice when you're going through it. Exactly. And I think that's where sometimes a lot of our stories come from. You notice something and you go, huh, I wonder if other people experience that, or I wonder if that's a bigger issue. So we we literally started looking for childcare the day after I found out I was pregnant. And at that point, we were relatively new to Wisconsin. People had been saying it's really hard to find daycare here, so, you know, be aware. So we were, I thought we were on top of it when we started looking. But the centers that had decent state ratings all had really long wait lists. So we were struggling to find a spot that would be ready when it was time for me to go back to work. And that's when I started wondering if all of this, the available, affordable, safe options, was this a bigger issue in Wisconsin? So where did you start on this story? Well, there are lots of studies out there about the general lack of quality, affordable, and available childcare in the United States and the effect that has on families and wages. But we really wanted to zero in on Wisconsin. 
Parents are stretched. We know that. So that's Erin Arango-Escalante. She works for Wisconsin's Department of Children and Families. And that's where we got data showing daycare options are shrinking. Over the last nine years, the number of licensed child care providers in the state dropped from roughly 9,000 to 4,000. I was watching the story, and just the maps, you sort of see those dots disappearing. It's a pretty dramatic decrease. It's pretty alarming, and it's a trend that's creating what, what are called child care deserts. So that, I saw, I first saw that on the screen, too, and I had to double-check and make sure it didn't say desserts. Yes, you know, that was no, like... they spelled it right. Okay. I had nightmares so, about misspelling so that. what are child care deserts? So they start with zip codes that have 30 or more children. So you take all those zip codes, and the child care deserts are the ones that only have one available child care slot for every three kids. So in 2018, 38% of Wisconsin zip codes were child care deserts. That sounds like a lot. In just one year, that number jumped up to 47%. So nearly half of our state zip codes are child care deserts. One thing I wanted to ask about that real quick on the numbers, though, when you say zip codes with 30 or more children, is that 30 or more children of sort of child care age or how's that? 30 or more, how how the state designates children. So children who would potentially need that kind of care. And one slot for three. For every three of those children that would need care. Okay. So in those cases, that means, you know, people then are having to go outside of the zip code to get care or they're having to cobble together other options. So this shows an issue with daycare availability in the state. What about the cost? So Wisconsin is consistently ranked as one of the least affordable states for child care. The average annual cost of infant care at a daycare center in Wisconsin was higher than in-state college tuition. Now, this is the part that caught me because as I was watching it, and the example we see on the screen is UWM, it's in-state, my daughter is a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. So you're and thinking about this. She wants to go to UWM. And one of the great things I thought is, oh, well, that's in state and that's that's good. But the numbers are still staggering. College, whether it's public or private, it's just expensive. But then you said this was more than yes. that? That's crazy. For infant care. And infant care is expensive because you have smaller um, teacher to child ratios, which A lot of people agree that's a very good thing to have. You need that. Infants have more needs. But that really is the big cost driver in this. And so married families in the state spend almost 25% of their income on center care. So to put that in perspective, several researchers have defined affordable child care as taking up 10% or less of a family's income. And if you say that to most families around here, they're going to laugh because most are paying well over 10%. 25% put it to the test. I think, Jenna, you kind of put that to the test yourself, right? I did. And it's pretty comparable to what my family's spending on child care right now with having three young children in uh, a child care facility full time. So I have the twins who are 15 months and just got out of the infant room, which the is expensive. the most expensive. And whenever you move up a classroom and pay a little less, it's exciting. But you were surprised, Brian, by those numbers thinking they were high. Those numbers did not surprise me at all. It did not surprise me that daycare was more than in-state tuition well, for and a child. T- to get a better idea, and just to emphasize, the daycares we're talking about here aren't the elite schools that are promising they're going to make your six-month-old the next Bill Gates. These are normal daycares. But what the state rates as five-star daycares, having met certain expectations, most of those in Milwaukee County and Ozaukee County, when I called around, were over $350 per week. So when you add that up, that very quickly is 
well over in-state tuition. Right. And Amanda, I'm sure you were in the same position as me when you were looking for childcare, but daycare isn't something that you want to compromise on. You want to make sure the teachers who are watching your kids are the best ones and you want to make sure they're feeling loved and comforted all day long. So it makes me sad to think that some families might not be getting what they want because they can't afford it, or they're having to drive really far, like the woman in your story who spent more than 30 minutes a day trying to get her kids to daycare. Right. So to kick off the story, we profiled a woman named Teresa who goes each way 30 minutes out of her way um, to bring her kids to a child care center that made her feel comfortable. And we did that to kind of highlight the problem, but I do think we need to acknowledge, and Brian, you and I were talking about this a little this morning, the story in itself does come from a place of privilege. Being able to drive that far out of your way, being able to say, I'm only going to look at five-star daycares, that's all something that you know we can be very fortunate to do, but it creates a really big societal problem when a lot of people can't do that. That's when you turn to unlicensed options. That's when you know, you have things that aren't taken into account, like when people do shift work and aren't working nine to five. And as you kind of cobble together those resources, we get bigger problems. Well, she's the example, I think, of a person who is privileged enough to be able to make that commute and to pay for it. But even she is struggling with the lack of these affordable right. options that are close enough for her to do something that's even reasonably convenient, she's got to go way out of her way just to get that. What about all these other people who can't afford it, who don't have the time for it, whose jobs won't allow for that? Right. Well, and even just anecdotally, I was talking to a single mom who did the math, and when her child was an infant, she crunched the numbers and figured out it would have been cheaper for her to stay home with her child and be on government assistance than it was for her to pay for infant child care and go to work. Because if you're a single parent in the state of Wisconsin, you're spending almost half of your income on average for an infant spot. And that's just not feasible for most people. So what's causing the decline in the number of licensed centers in our states? What's behind that. Yeah. So it's not just an issue in Wisconsin. It's an issue all over the country. But in Wisconsin, several people have pointed to the expense of running a licensed daycare center and how difficult it is to recruit qualified teachers. And the key term there is qualified because the definition, according to the state, in order to get state subsidies and, you know, be licensed in other state capacities, is that to be a qualified teacher, you have to have a bachelor's in early childhood education. So that makes it tough for people to enter that market because you're not going to get paid a whole lot. College expenses are going up, so you have a lot of people reconsidering that major, and it's harder to switch then to that profession later in life. So if I, Amanda St. Hilaire, said, you know what, I'm done being a journalist, I want to go work in an infant room because I feel so strongly about this, I would have to go back to school for four years. I couldn't go get a master's or do some kind of certification program. I would have to get that bachelor's. And for what you're going to get paid, you're not going to see that money again. So there's barriers to entry, but the payoff is small. Right. And so with the trouble of recruiting those qualified teachers, That's when it becomes tougher to stay open. You don't want to raise your rates too much because you're going to outprice the parents and they're going to go somewhere else anyway. So we spoke with someone who used to run a child care center and now she runs a consulting organization who said it's just this kind of 
circular problem that keeps coming back around. So her hope is that we could still have high requirements to be qualified, but does that need to be a really expensive four-year degree in a very specific subject? Are there other ways, less expensive ways, we could meet that requirement? I don't want to take this off track. I hope it doesn't, but I do think about when I was a kid, there was no 3K and 4K. And a lot more schools have those programs and for good reasons. And there's, there's, there's great maybe educational reasons for that. But is this part of it too? I mean, are parents looking for earlier and earlier options to get kids out of daycare and into the schools because it is such a financial burden? Right. Well, and I think about when my husband and I were considering where we wanted to live and a big draw to our area was it has a full-time 4K program. And that's something that you really want to consider. Our society is kind of set up right now to operate as though one parent is at home. So you look at how the school year runs, you look at how the school day runs. Even for child care center hours, they don't really take into account shift work. You pick your nine-hour slot and that's it. And you have a lot of people working more than 40 hours a week. So, you know, that's definitely as, as more people look for those options to better accommodate what the current economy is, then that's, I could definitely see, and I've anecdotally heard from child care centers that they have a harder time keeping parents there for the later years, especially because the earlier years are so expensive. So you mentioned some of the solutions that could be put in place here to make these problems go away. Are there any other ones that are out there, any other options that could deal with the, the low pay for teachers or um, the long lists for the parents who are trying to get in and the prohibitive costs? Uh, The Department of Children and Families offered up a few ideas that I thought were interesting. So one of them was a private-public partnership. So essentially the state offering incentives to companies that and say, hey, you know what, if you build the facility for someone to operate a daycare in your center, so you're not the one running the daycare, but you're the one providing essentially the overhead cost. Someone comes in there, you can offer this to your employees at a lower cost. We'll give you some kind of state incentive. However, you have to wait a long time to see returns on that investment, but the claim is that there are returns on that investment. Another option is providing businesses with tax incentives if they hold a certain number of child care spots at a local child care center where basically they have that agreement saying, hey, we'll guarantee that these spots will always be filled, but it's at a lower cost for our people. And that means at least our people aren't on wait lists forever and ever because that's been such a big issue. Mm -hmm. I actually related to the woman in your story when she was driving the 30 minutes with her kids because when my daughter first started daycare, I chose a place closer to my work and I spent time in the car with her and she hated the car. She cried the whole way to daycare and back. But it made me sad to think that I was spending an hour in the car with her that I could have been spending with her at home. You know, it's when you work full time and you've got an infant in daycare, you want to snuggle them and play with them as home as much as you can. So to take time away to have to go out of your way is frustrating. And I completely understand where they're coming from. And another thing, people always talk about saving money for college. I don't feel like as many people talk about saving money for daycare. So from a a public service standpoint, I think your story did a bit to inform people, too, that this is a major expense that you're going to have to afford if you want to have kids in childcare and you want to stay in your career. Well, and now there are, it's good that it's starting to become more of a mainstream talking point. Whenever we do a story like this, there's always one person who comments, oh, you know, why should 
we invest in things for other people to watch your kids and stay at home with your kids and other things that are kind of unproductive to the conversation because that's just not the way our economy Mm -hmm. and our society works anymore. You have a lot more households with both parents that work outside the home. As we go down that road and as we've talked about it more, you'll see more options at work like setting up an account that is tax-free for the purpose of childcare. And that's all great, but they've kind of been slow steps. And for a lot of people, they're saying, that's fine. It's not enough. I still need to go to work. My kid needs to be safe. What are we going to do about this? Do we have any issues in this state with the quality of care because of these issues? So that's, I don't know if I can directly link it to because of these issues, but certainly quality is a factor. So for example, when we're talking about cost, the state does market rate surveys to keep track of the cost of daycare. That doesn't factor in the quality aspect. And the state, through its Young Star system, will measure the quality. And even places rated as five stars, just because it's rated as supposedly high quality by the state, that doesn't mean it's actually high quality. The issue is if you need to make a decision quickly and you have nowhere else to go and you need to go back to work, you're just going to go with this place that looks like it's fine on paper and may not be fine in reality. And it has a slot available. Right. I mean, that's the key. When when you're questioning availability and affordability, quality can take a backseat. And to even be able to consider quality in the first place is a privilege because it means you've to some degree been able to master those other categories. So, And everyone has a different definition of quality as well. So you can find, um, and hopefully we can link to this too on our website, you can find the state inspections online to a certain degree, but even those are limited. They only go back so far. So, you know, when you're talking about quality and licensed and unlicensed, it can be a really tricky conversation. That's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. So this is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or whenever we're out and about. I haven't done this in a while. I'm really excited to be back for this. There is a catch. We have no idea what this question is going to be. So we have several envelopes in front of us, and I'm going to pick one at random. It's been a while since you've done this. It has. Welcome back. Let's see if I remember how to open an envelope. You're not that tired, right? No, I'm not. How do you handle mean comments? Like social media type things or just in general, I guess? It, it doesn't say. I feel like so. I'm not allowed to elaborate on the question. We just need to take it. It's open to our interpretation. Open to our interpretation. How do you handle mean comments? Well, it's inevitable in this industry today with all the social media that we do get mean comments occasionally. I will say overwhelmingly, I think people are nice. But it's amazing how one mean comment can get inside your head. If somebody says something that just happens to strike a chord with you, something that you've been thinking about. Um, I remember after I had the twins, someone tweeted to me, you just look so tired all the time. And, you know, I was really tired and I didn't really Never appreciate tell- having it They're pointed out. That, Public that, service yeah. announcement, you look tired it's just never something. It, right. it never comes across well. It is never a nice thing to say. The all the time do part it. wasn't great either. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, I think you have to have a little bit of a thicker skin in this business. Whenever I see people getting really worked up about something, I say, well, just don't read it. You know, it doesn't really matter what they think. But we do have a business where people feel like they can comment on things like your appearance and your clothes, where I don't think it's appropriate in other industries, but we're in the public eye. It's just expected, and that's what you have to do. This is where I have my male privilege because I almost never get comments about my appearance, and and I probably should, <laughs> but I don't. I mean, I, we I, still I haven't taken you makeup shopping What's about uh, maybe about a story. No, I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm not saying I don't get mean comments. I'm saying that particular mm. area is one that, for whatever reason, yeah. viewers don't seem to focus on, and it's an unfortunate truth that female anchors and reporters get a lot more of that. And, and I, I, I don't know how I would handle it. I think that can really strike at a sensitive area because we all have areas of our own appearance we're self-conscious about. And when you've just had children and you're feeling that sort of thing and then someone hits that chord, you know, that's got to be very difficult. But when it comes to mean comments, the ones that are, are directed toward me would normally be just related to a story I've done and whether maybe they think, you know, you're just a mouthpiece for this or that or the other thing. Um, I, what I found over the years is the ones that bother me the most are, though, the ones where I think they might have a little something mm-hmm. to what they're saying. Maybe you've done a story where you you tried really hard to be balanced and you feel like maybe it was a little over the line one way and someone calls you out on that. That sticks with you because you think you know, they might have been right. It's something you were worried about. Correct. So they're, they're getting at something that's already avoid. sort of but, – but the ones that I think they're way off base, they don't really bother me that much. Mm-hmm. After all these years in this business, sometimes I'm just glad people are watching <laughs> or that they're talking. <laughs> and if they're talking and they're, they're upset or they have opinions, most of the time with social media, I'll let it go when I don't want to intervene because you sort of let that – happen organically. Occasionally, if there's something being factually misstated, I might jump in and, and you know, point out just so you know this or maybe you missed this part of the story. But for the most part, I try to stay out of the fray because I think once you inject yourself in, that's when it can really blow up. See, I think slightly differently than you do where the ones that have some kind of merit don't I don't want to say they don't bother me, but they don't stick with me as much because I can, oh, they were probably right. And, you know, I I can try this or it's a new angle for my story if it's something I hadn't considered before. So that can almost in a way be invigorating or lead to a really productive conversation. And when I've gotten those comments and said something back to someone like, hey, actually you have a point, it's always been a really productive conversation after that. What the ones that are really off base or make it clear that the person didn't watch or read the story, that bothers me. And it like logically it shouldn't, but it just does. Um, I like to monitor. I'd say don't read the comments, but sometimes you get really good story ideas from the comments. So it's hard to not monitor that. I've had really bad experiences when I've jumped in after reading the comments. I've had really good experiences when I've jumped in after reading the comments. I think it just depends on the mood you're in <laughs> and the kind of people that you interact with. So I usually try to wait a beat before I jump in. If I if I see a mean comment on a story that posted on a Thursday, I might wait till Friday afternoon to respond so that I've had time to think about it. I do think there's a different layer when you're female and things uh, start to become about your appearance. I remember when I was in Harrisburg, we were reporting on a guy um, who had been arrested for ISIS activity. And it was a long day of overtime. I missed a family event to stay there, was reporting live 
around the clock, um, was really proud of the work we as a station had done. And this guy just gets on Twitter, and the only response he has to that story is, you need a nose job. Ouch. It's like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, you know, it. unfortunately, I think sometimes we get desensitized to that as as women. And so I roll my eyes a little bit when uh, you see, I guess, I don't know, other people, sometimes men get criticized for their appearance and take it to a, a different level. And I think women are just kind of used to it, unfortunately. You know, it's not just on social media, though. I remember when I was out in the field more often, I think that there's a familiarity with us that people have, which is great, but it also makes them more comfortable saying things to you that maybe they wouldn't say to a stranger they're meeting for the first time. Um, So I've had people say some pretty rude things to my face the first time they talk to me just because they feel like they maybe know me already. And it might be about a coworker of mine or it might be about the station or the media in general that I don't think people would say just initially to someone they're meeting. So sometimes people say to me, oh, I'm sorry, I, I think I said something rude to you. And I'll be like, no, you have no idea. That was that didn't even get <laughs> on like the radar of rude things yeah. people have said to me. But, you know, it's it's just something you accept when you well, get in, in this business. And, and the question was mean. I mean, the word mean, because there are a lot of things people will say that are maybe critical of right. our and work. That's, they're and right, that's, absolutely. You know, we're doing stories that sometimes, certainly the people in our stories are taking positions, and sometimes our stories are advocating for something that's controversial. Um, so you sort of expect sometimes, sometimes criticism. Sometimes we deserve that criticism. Yeah, and, and I think criticism's good because it, it fosters debate. But this is talking about mean. And there are some things where there's no critical value it's just mean. It's just rude. Right. And I'm always amazed that people feel free. Prior to Facebook, when when sort of the internet was still, people were still anonymous most of the time, I thought, I kind of get that because people feel emboldened. But now people just don't seem to care. Your name and face are right there. I can click and see a lot about your life. And, and you know, sometimes I think we probably all fall victim to this, you're tempted to go, okay, well, I want to know who this person is who's saying this. And <laughs> yes. you start looking at it. It's very yeah, easy. Yeah, you say I need a nose job. Let me see what your nose looks like. It's easy sometimes to privately scoff and go, oh, really? Well, look at you. But I would never say that back. I w- you think it. Most of the time, though, if I click on someone's profile, I feel a little better after I, <laughs> after I view it a little bit. You know, I'm not going to well, it's, go too it's deep usually, that, It helps me better. to remember, okay, if this really is a mean-spirited thing, it's more of a reflection on them. They're mm-hmm. maybe they're really sad, and this somehow made them feel better. I don't know, um, but those those when you can tell it just comes from a bad place, mm-hmm. then I I see your point, Brian, where that is a little easier to brush off than something that you know I also maybe wonder, someone had good intentions or some we, valid point. You can't like. Anyone who wants to reach out and, and talk to Brad Pitt or get a me- – not going to very easily make contact. But at the local level, news reporters and journalists are probably – they appear to be more accessible. We are mm-hmm. more accessible. Um, but I still think when people post some of these things or send some of these things, I don't know that they actually think we're going to read them or they don't imagine us. But if you do reply – I do wonder sometimes if someone were to say something like the the awful comment about you should get a nose job – if you reply, I wonder if on the other end they're going, oh, my gosh, she saw it. Yeah. Well, that's what happened. At one, I got one email. Um, I was doing live shots in the winter and had a puffy coat on, and it was just a one-sentence email, and it just said, you look fat in your coat, <laughs> period. <laughs> that was it. It was actually pretty funny. Um, but I, I responded and said, you know, 
thanks for watching. It's winter, so I'm going to keep wearing my coat. Have a great day. Like, that was it. But this person was not expecting me to respond. I got a very long apology email after that. So it gave me it gave me some faith in the world. So the, the message to viewers is we do see <laughs> yes. what you write. But please, we'll respond if you send us nice things, too. Don't think that you need to send us mean things. To uh, get us to respond. To get us to respond. Probably We're much more, more likely, likely to respond nice, if you send yeah. us something nice. Thanks for listening to Open Record. We'd also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. And if you enjoyed listening, let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.